Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast. Taking a look inside your genes. When it comes to figuring out which genes and genetic variations are linked to particular traits and diseases, there's only one way to do it, and that's to go large, with cohort studies involving hundreds or even thousands of volunteers. By collecting data and backing that up with good genetic data and biomedical data, we can can be pretty accurate in what we're finding out. We meet the Born in Bradford bunch, a Canadian cohort, and more than a few pairs of twins. Plus, oh my God, they killed our gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for September 2015 with me, Dr. Katani, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This month, I've been to the British Science Festival in Bradford, home of the Born in Bradford cohort study. Five years ago, a team of researchers in the city embarked on an ambitious collaborative project with scientists in the UK, Pakistan and elsewhere to study as many babies born in the city as possible, looking at their health and educational outcomes as well as their genetics. I went along to their annual meeting held at the National Media Museum in the centre of town to find out more about the study and some of the results that are coming out of it. First, I spoke to the director of the whole study, Professor John Wright, and started by asking him what exactly is a cohort study. People will know them from television series like Seven Up and Child of Our Time, uh, where we choose a group of people. Uh, in this case, it's a birth cohort study, so we're choosing children born, in fact, in pregnancy, and we follow them up and we try and identify which children fall ill and which children stay healthy. And then by collecting the data in early life, we can unpick what causes those illnesses. So tell me a bit more about the Born in Bradford study. Who are these lucky kids? We started recruiting children in 2007 uh, and carried on recruiting until about 2011. We've recruited 12,500 mothers, about 13,500 children and about 4,000 dads. Um, There's more children than mothers because mothers have more than one child. About half our children are of Pakistani, South Asian, mostly Pakistani origin and about half are white British origin. Why Bradford? Because there's lots of towns in the UK or you could do the whole of the UK. Why Bradford in particular? So Bradford's a big city. It's the fifth biggest city in the UK. Um, It's very multicultural. It has high levels of ill health, um, and so it's a good place to study. It's a good population laboratory to try to understand. If you're going to understand the causes of diabetes and heart disease and genetic disease, uh, you're going to choose somewhere which has high levels because you've got more chance of trying to uh, find out why. But it's also a city that uh, has great pride uh, and great cohesion, and I think uh, there's not many cities that could have stepped up and done what we've done in Born in Bradford. How are you actually studying these children and their parents? What sort of things are you measuring and how long are you going to follow them for? We started 
when the mothers were about 24, 26 weeks pregnant. And we've got details, questionnaire data, uh, DNA, biomarkers, body measurements of all the mothers. When the children were born, we, we me- measured all the babies and took blood samples in the babies. And then we followed them up over time, groups of them, usually around specific projects. And most importantly, in this 21st century, when we have electronic records for everything, we've got consent from all the families to link up their data, their medical data, their education data. And by doing that, we can track remotely at a very low cost what's happening to these children in their health and in their education. How long it goes on for? I think the most exciting results in Born in Bradford will be um, long after I'm dead. Um, But I'm hoping we're going to get some interesting findings along the way. What kind of things can these cohort studies tell us? Why are they so valuable? One of the challenges we face in trying to unpick the causes of disease is firstly having a selection bias and that we just choose people that have the disease or don't have the disease for for particular reasons. Um, So by choosing a cohort, you don't know who's going to get the disease. So So it's unbiased in its sampling. The other key aspect of it is that it's prospective. So you're collecting data before something happens, so you're not relying on the recall bias of the mothers or the fathers of the children to say, oh, maybe it was that meal that I had that gave me food poisoning, uh, which we all tend to do. We all tend to attribute things to think to our own lay beliefs. So by collecting data, uh, clear data, and backing that up with good genetic data and biomedical data, we can, we can be pretty accurate in what we're finding out. It's also a big commitment for a family to be part of this. If you say, well, we're going to follow you as long as we can, how do the families feel about being involved in this, particularly as in some cases you are really digging into their genetics and their health? What, what, what's, uh, what's amazed us in Born in Bradford is how engaged the community has been, how altruistic people are, actually. You know, when, they, when there's a good cause, you know, in terms of uh, providing solutions to their children's children. Um, about improving health, how people want to participate. So we haven't had any shortage of goodwill. John Wright, Director of Born in Bradford. So what kinds of disease-causing genetic changes have turned up in the Born in Bradford study so far? One man who's been digging into the data is Eamon Sheridan from Leeds University. Well, from a straightforward academic perspective, we've identified 30 or 40 novel disease genes in that period of time, at least. Um, And several of those are tremendously interesting biologically. Usually we only identify disease genes that cause disease in a couple of families locally. But the reason that it's important is because of what it tells us about basic biology. So we've identified disease genes that are involved in very basic mechanisms with the way about the way you, that your brain grows and the way that your brain is formed so that's which is which is an extremely hot topic in biology generally and then we've also identified genes that are involved in the way that the little energy factories in the cells the mitochondria the way that those work fairly fundamental things about those so although we tend to identify disease genes which are of importance clinically to any restricted number of families, they're biologically really important because they give you shortcuts into understanding the biology, which would otherwise be really difficult to obtain. The Born in Bradford study is carrying on for a long time into the future. Do you think that the gene variations you've identified now are pretty much the low-hanging fruit? Do you hope that there's going to be many more coming out? Yeah, these, these are definitely the low-hanging fruit. 
at the moment because these are the genes where faults in a single gene cause a single disorder and that's relatively straightforward but um, the nature of the born in Bradford cohort particularly this kind of bi-ethnic mix of um, white British people and Pakistani people means that we can investigate other problems as well and one of the areas that we're particularly interested in is diabetes and we know that the frequency of diabetes in the Pakistani community is greater than in the white British community and a comparison of genetic variation in those two communities ought to give us an idea of why it's more common in the Pakistani community than in the white British community but that's that's a longer term and much more complicated pro- programme than we've, we've pursued up to now. More broadly speaking, how valuable to genetics researchers like yourself are these large cohort studies? From the perspective of, of sorting out common diseases, there's absolutely no, no doubt that these large cohorts are the only way forward because, in essence, with, with classical genetics where fault in a single gene results in a single disorder, the effect of the variant is extremely high. It results in a distinct disorder, whereas with common disorders, the effect of individual variation is going to be actually very small, and it's only by having large cohorts with big, big numbers that you can actually identify things that are likely to be significant. Leeds University's Eamon Sheridan. Although Eamon and his team have found many genetic changes linked to disease, it's not always that straightforward. A Bradford lad himself, David Van Heel is now Professor of Genetics at Barts and the London's Blizzard Institute. He's been studying the Born in Bradford cohort to search for so-called human knockouts. More commonly associated with laboratory genetic engineering techniques involving mice or fruit flies, knockouts are organisms lacking both copies of a particular gene, the one from mum and the one from dad. And rather than being created in a lab, human knockouts are naturally occurring, as he explained to me. Everybody has some knockout genes. Normally we have about 100 or so genes where one uh, copy doesn't work. Uh, And we thought that in the uh, Bradford population um, we would find people where two copies of the gene didn't work, for reasons I'll tell you, and that that would be very interesting. And indeed it's turned out so, that there are actually healthy people who are absolutely fine with uh, genes that don't work, uh, and that actually tells us a lot about human biology. Why is this population particularly interesting to try and find examples of these people who've got two faulty copies of particular genes. Yeah, so I don't like the word faulty, first of all. I like the word different. We all have lots of gene variation. Um, Faulty implies that something might go wrong, whereas that's not what we've been seeing. Um, We have been finding genes that uh, are knocked out, so you don't have the protein, uh, but um, your health is unaffected. So why is it interesting in some South Asian populations, there's a higher rate of close related ancestors. So, for example, uh, people of Pakistani heritage in Bradford, there's about a 20-30% rate of uh, people marrying their first cousins and children who are offspring of such a marriage will inherit uh, two copies, in some cases, of a gene uh, from the same ancestor. Going back to the knockouts study, so we have done something called exome sequencing of uh, 3,000 people from the Born in Bradford study. Uh, That's where we've looked at all the protein coding genes in the genome, uh, in all those people, and we've said, actually, can we predict that any of those genes might not work, where both copies don't work. And we've been finding that in those 3,000 people, there are about 1,000 people with um, uh, double gene knockouts, Um, We've looked at their health records, their mothers in the Born in Bradford cohort, uh, and they don't appear to, these people don't appear to suffer any ill health in 
terms of medicines or how often you see a doctor, but we do find some very interesting genes which are switched off. So, for example, um, there are a couple of genes involved in hearing where children have been described with variants in those genes uh, which cause um, genetic hearing loss, but we found adults with variants in those genes where the genes don't work, whose hearing is perfectly fine. And indeed, some of them have had audiometry, and that's in, which is a proper hearing test, and that's completely normal. So what that's saying is that actually, for some genetic variants, which are thought to cause a genetic disease, actually when you look in healthy populations, you can find those genetic variants, and that suggests that the risk is um, uh, actually considerably less than might have been thought, and has implications for... The advance of genome sequencing, there's now a lot of companies offering genome sequencing and you can go out and buy your own genome sequence uh, and there's a lot of ethical discussion about feedback of results. Um, but what we've shown is that even for the genetic changes which might have the most obvious effect on a protein, um, in many cases, um, whilst they might alter biological pathways, they don't affect health. It almost sounds contradictory to what many people might have of the idea of genetics, that a a difference or a a change in one gene, if you get two versions of it, that causes a disease, the sort of idea of Mendel's one gene, one disease. What you're finding suggests that people can be walking around with these differences that should cause them a problem, but don't. So what's going on? Is is something else compensating? What, What do we know? So I think you're right, something else is compensating. The variants we find... Uh, definitely change the protein, uh, but don't give the person the condition that might be expected from studies of big multiply affected families. And actually, I think it is just compensation that there are another 19,000 genes in the genome other than the one you're looking at, and that variation in those can compensate. And what we've done by studying uh, mothers who came to the antenatal clinic is actually pick healthy people. So there's what's known as an ascertainment bias. It's the exact opposite of what people studying rare diseases have done. They've picked people with rare diseases uh, and picked a very severe end of the spectrum. We've picked a very, uh, well, a no no disease end of the spectrum. And perhaps it's not surprising that we're finding um, somewhat different and lower risks. Where next? How do we start to unpick and understand what's going on and then use that information for health benefits? So there's a whole variety of things we can do. So we're, we're setting up this big study, Genes and Health, taking adults from the population. So we're not specifically going for healthy, but we're not looking for people with rare and severe diseases. And so there's quite a lot of other things like drug response. Um, we're looking at people with diabetes, particularly in South Asian populations. There are very high rates of diabetes and uh, outcomes from that. Uh, and although I've been saying that the risks for some of these genetic variants are lower, uh, they're not zero. So, for example, in the Bradford population, uh, we've found 40 people who have uh, knockouts in genes which should cause a recessive uh, genetic disease and looking back at their health records uh, we found about 20% of those people do actually have the condition uh, that the Mendelian databases suggest but 80% don't we think that's an example of this reduced penetrance um, of genetic conditions. David Van Heel from Barts in the London and thanks to Laura Lamming the Born in Bradford team and the National Media Museum for allowing me access to their meeting. This is the Naked Genetics podcast. I'm Kat Arney. Coming up later, 
oh my god, they killed the gene of the month. But first, it's time to return to our theme of cohort studies. It's not just Bradford. Large-scale studies are ongoing all around the world. And it's not just genetics that they're looking at. There's epigenetics too, a topic we covered in the last couple of podcasts. Megan Jones at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, is studying a group of Canadian children known as the Child Study, looking at the genetics, epigenetic and environmental triggers of asthma and allergies from the very earliest stages of life. Things that happen to you in utero during pregnancy when you're in your mother's womb or early in life lead to health outcomes later on. Uh, there are a lot of examples of these. We know about these things already. We know things like um, children who grew up in adverse environments, if they grew up in a poor neighborhood with lots of violence and um, crime in the neighborhood, they have worse health outcomes, especially things like cardiovascular disease later in life. So we know the connections exist, but we, nobody knows why. And so we're trying to find out if we can find molecular mechanisms that explain some of those connections. To how do we see um, what's happening physically and on a cellular level to connect a prenatal exposure with a later health outcome. I mean, how, how definite are these links? Because it sounds kind of scary thinking, oh my goodness, something that your mother did when she was pregnant with you or maybe when she didn't even realise she was pregnant with you could be dooming you forever to a life of ill health. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, we don't, it is not all doom and gloom in this field at all. It's definitely not deterministic. The kind of things we work on are very plastic, they're very changeable. Um, but they are sometimes indicators, and they're indicators of risk. So, like I said, the example about children growing up in, in poor neighborhoods within heart disease, it's not that every child who goes up poor is going to grow up to have heart disease, but they are at an increased risk. So the nice thing is if we can start f- teasing out some of the mechanisms, figuring out why this has happened, we can figure out the kinds of interventions that can prevent the health outcome in the future. What kind of diseases are we talking about you know you've mentioned heart disease but uh, what what other sort of things might be linked to these kind of early exposures so one of my major studies is on asthma and allergies development of the immune system is very sensitive to insults and we know especially in in um, the western world that the incidence of asthma and allergies is growing by leaps and bounds we don't know why Um, there's the idea of the hygiene hypothesis that in the western world we're we are not exposed to the natural environment the way we used to be not enough filth basically yeah we're we're too (laughs) clean we we, we, you know we don't go hanging around with with cows and chickens in the yard that makes your immune system start to overreact if it's exposed to things that are not actually dangerous like pollen or cat hair or any of the other things that there's no reason for your immune system to act like that way. So how do you start looking at these kind of links between these early exposures and later effects on the immune system? So we will take advantage of what's called natural experiments, which is a fancy term for cohort studies. Um, some amazing, kind people who are willing to sacrifice time and effort to to be parts of our studies. I take part in one of these big Canadian child, or it's called the Child Study, big um, cohort study in Canada, and they all they did was put up posters in waiting rooms of uh, prenatal clinics, and said, you know, it, would you like to be part of a study? And 3,500 women in Canada signed up, um, and they're still there three years down the road and they're still they come in once a year they're collecting data they fill in questionnaires Um, so these natural experiments take advantage of the the variability that exists in the population we just ask everyone anyone who's interested can come in and that gives us a really nice cross-section of of the kinds of things that actually exist what sort of things are you looking at then to try and work out might have an influence later on what sort of things are you measuring we're measuring something called dna methylation dna methylation is uh it's a mark on your dna it doesn't change the sequence of your dna at all um, but it adds a little bit of a chemical group 
at specific sites in the genome. Uh, and the only thing that that does is it affects the way that your genes are turned on and off. So we think because it's not changing the sequence, because it's, much, it's very changeable, it can be put on and taken off sort of at will, that it's more responsive to the environment. But it may stick around after its usefulness is the idea. So if, you, if you're you know, exposed to, what's a good example, stress. You know, if if you know, your mom is, is having a stressful time during her pregnancy, um, then your immune system might start reacting to stress because you know, phys- biologically and physically you're, you're acting together with your mom. But after you're born, you don't necessarily need to keep that same active mark on, and, but it might stick around afterwards. Where do you think we are with being able to definitely link some of these epigenetic effects to actual health outcomes in the long term? Yeah, we're not there yet. Right now, it is very correlational. So what we do is we take large groups of people, um, the bigger the better, and we say, do we see patterns in these people that are different from another group of people? So that's just correlative. We can't say anything about causation yet. Um, The thing that's really exciting about the field is this is all brand new. We don't actually have that much of even this preliminary stage data yet. Um, So we're still building on that, and that's why it's really exciting to be working in the field. But the next stages we're starting to get in there, which is validation. That's the first thing you need to do. Once you find something in a group of people, you have to find another independent group of people and find the same thing, or it may just be an effect of the specific group you looked at. Um, after that, once we start finding these effects, we need to drilling down a little bit more closer into the molecular mechanisms to find out whether the, the patterns that we're seeing are actually having an effect. It's, it's going to be a long road, but if it, if it was easy, anyone could do it. That was Megan Jones from the University of British Columbia. In last month's podcast, we heard how Professor Robert Plowman and his team at King's College London have been tracking thousands of twins over 15 years, recently seeing them through their GCSEs and investigating the genetic components that are linked to academic success. I asked him to explain more about why twins are so interesting to geneticists and what they can tell us. Almost all countries now, something like 100 countries, have national twin registries. And the reason for that is the twin method, even in this day of DNA, is still very valuable as an initial screen for whether or not traits are influenced by genetics, by heritable differences between people, which fundamentally means DNA differences between them. About 1% of all births are twins, live births, and about one-third of those are identical twins, who are called monozygotic, which means a single zygote, a single fertilized egg that in the first couple of weeks of life separates into two clones, and they really are clones. They have identical DNA material. And in contrast, the other two-thirds of twins are called dizygotic, two zygotes, meaning two separately fertilized eggs. Like all first-degree relatives, they share 50% of their genes. They're just siblings. So you can use this then as a natural experiment. If something's heritable that is influenced by genetics, you'd have to predict that these clones, pairs of clones, will be more similar because they share 100% of their genes than fraternal twins or dizygotic twins who share only 50%. And so the twin method allows us to look at the extent to which these differences, say in musical ability, which actually hasn't been studied. It's only recently there's been a study done on it. And people oh, it's heritable, the box and you know, the famous Mozart family sorts of things. But that doesn't prove it. That could be nature or nurture. So the twin method is a good way of screening for genetic influence. And so I, when I came to the UK from the US, I was interested in the fact that in the UK, it's, there are national statistics, whereas in the US, everything is decentralized to states. So I wanted to get a, a national register of twins. 
because you know, epidemiologically that just makes a lot more sense. It's a more representative sample, that sort of thing. So we were able to do that, and that created the Twins Early Development Study, which is a study of all twins born in 1994, 95, and 96. So those twins are now taking A-levels and going to university. And what we've been publishing on recently is GCSE scores. How many twins have you got in this study? How do you track them down and recruit them into mm-hmm. this kind of study? Well, if 1% of twins uh, births are twins, you'd expect that Back when we were doing it in 94, 95, and 96, about you know, 1% of all births is about 7,000, 8,000 pairs of twins born a year. And so when we studied these three birth year cohorts, we were able to initially identify through birth records uh, over 18,000 twin pairs. And amazingly, over 16,000 of the parents of these young twins, this is in the first year of life, were interested in being part of the study. And twins are great because parents of twins know their twins are special. They, you know, you're not studying them because you know, they've got some disease or something like that. They're just normal, but they're twins and fascinating. We have a, a solid bunch of about 7,500 pairs. That's 15,000 individuals who have been participating regularly. And we expect for GCSEs, well, for GCSEs, we have that many pairs of twins. For A-levels now, and as they go into university, we've just been funded now. The MRC, I should say, has funded this all along, and we're in our fifth renewal of a program grant. So we now are funded to study them through 25 years of age. These cohort studies are very valuable because we carried them through GCSEs, but then having... 16 years of data on these children from infancy. You know, we've studied them about 12 times over that whole uh, period. It's, at, you know, it adds so much value then to add another assessment. And what, what our pitch now is to say, hardly anyone has studied the transition to what we call emerging adulthood. It's a bit of a buzzword, but this era, it used to be that you went from school to marriage, a job for life, End of story, some people would say. Now there's this long, long period. It's not like delayed adolescence or something. It's different. You know, it, there's an independence, but a sense of trying a lot of things out. And on average, it goes on for eight years, 10 years. And so it's really a great chance to take these 20 years of data that we have and then use this twin method to study what we're calling sort of functional adjustment to adulthood. You know, we're not going to just study academic skills anymore, but more like the communication skills, the adjustment you need to get through this really wild emerging period of adulthood that we now have. In terms of their genetics and their DNA, what are you analysing in their DNA? Are you doing all their genomes? What are you looking at at the Mm -hmm. DNA level? Well, we, um, like everyone else, have collected DNA on uh, about 12,000 of these individuals. And so, like everyone else, we're also trying to find genes using the same methods that people use. And in general, people realize you need even larger samples. So there's a big tendency towards collaboration and consortia, where you put the data together to get hundreds of thousands of individuals to detect the tiny effects. You need very big samples. So we're doing that. But what I'm particularly interested in is this tendency towards what we call polygenic scores. So you don't just take the one or two bits of DNA that look like they're associated with a trait, say like mathematical ability or STEM achievement in STEM subjects. You find like this DNA variation seems to be more common in people who are really good at maths. Yeah, that's what an association is. But instead of looking for the 1, 2, 10, or 100, what we're doing is taking 
tens of thousands of these single nucleotide polymorphisms called SNPs, just DNA differences that are in two forms. That seems to be paying off in a lot of areas of complex traits in medicine as well as in the behavioral sciences. So once you can do that, you can begin to predict, even if you're only explaining a few percent of the variation in these complex traits. And so that we can do with our sample sizes. And so that's where we're kind of aiming now. So it's not about pinning down a specific gene or a specific kind of region of the DNA. It's more about the genetic landscape, I guess, kind of the, the whole picture and the, the, the tone of the whole picture in someone's genome. Yes, and it's not every single bit of DNA. I mean, for some traits, you'll find that some 10,000 SNPs are uh, making more of a difference than for other traits. So it's not the same genes that affect everything. But in the cognitive realm, what's interesting is how general the effects are. And I think that's beginning to get the attention of neuroscientists. Because, you know, for a long time, neuroscience was kind of modular. They were looking for which bit of the brain does this and which bit of the brain does that. And other people are saying, why are you doing that? Because surely the brain evolved to be a general problem solver. And instead of making it easy for neuroscientists by finding single tracks between genes, brain, and behavior... It makes much more sense to take advantage of the little differences that are there in a lot of different systems. So I think systems approaches, network approaches, is what it's about. And in genetics, we see that too. People are doing network sort of analyses, whole gene analyses, rather than looking SNP by SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism at a time. Professor Robert Plyman from King's College London. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month. And this time, oh my God! They killed Kenny. Named by University of Strasbourg scientist and South Park fan Sophie Richman, fruit flies with a faulty version of the Kenny gene die within two days after being infected with certain bacteria, similar to the hapless character in the cartoon show. Also known by the names Nemo and IKK Gamma, Kenny is an important part of the fly's immune response, working together with another gene known as Relish. That's all for now. I'll be back next month with a constructive look at the world of synthetic biology and taking part in a study to find out if there's a genetic basis to sociability. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can get in touch through our Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next time for another peek inside your genes. 